0: Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode, with flu season officially upon us, we interview Professor Victor Huber about the importance of immunizations. Victor, how's it going today? It's going well. How about you? I'm doing well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, You're a professor of uh, basic biomedical science, associate professor. Um, Just tell us a little bit about your role here at USD. So
1: I work in the uh, Sanford School of Medicine, and my immediate responsibilities include teaching the immune system to medical students, and then
0: doing research on vaccines against influenza viruses. Well, maybe this kind of answers my next question, but I was looking at some of your teaching focuses, and immunology is one of them. Um, It was a term I've not seen before, virology. How do you say that? Virology? Virology, yes. Virology. Um, What is that? What is that all about?
1: So that's the
0: study of viruses. Okay. And... uh, (laughs) You know, what is, I mean, not to ask too, I mean, basic of a question, but like, how do you study a virus? Is it a lot of work done under a microscope? Is it statistics work? I mean, is it all of the above? Um, We actually have tools. So viruses have to live inside cells,
1: so they become very difficult. It's hard to visualize those using a microscope. So we use molecular tools to sort of change the viruses and then see how that then affects their ability to infect cells. So um, we can basically... uh, manipulate them and see if that manipulation
0: makes them grow better or worse inside those cells. Well, and I really wanted to get into that topic was how, how do you manipulate these viruses um you know, is it kind of guesswork as far as you take out a, a you know building block of the virus and you just then see what happens? Is it a little bit more focus is is it I guess is you know obviously you're a scientist, but like how much of it is an art where you're you're kind of maybe doing a little guesswork as far as just what you you feel um, the virus might do if you manipulate it in some way
1: so the virus we've studied the most is influenza virus and it has a pretty unique uh, way of sort of. uh, containing its genetic information. It has it on individual strands that can then be sort of mixed and matched together. Um, And so that gives us an ability to then say, well, if we see two viruses that respond differently, can we take some of the genes from one and some of the genes from the other, put them together and see how that sort of new hybrid virus will respond within those cells. And that's where we start the process. And then from there, you can sort of zoom in on what within those individual segments causes that uh, change. Different than other viruses where all of their genetic code is on a single strand, and then you really are guessing, you're trying to figure out you know, within that single strand of genetic information, you have to make changes that would then um, affect the same uh, processes that we're looking
0: at. You know, you recently um, were awarded a patent for an influenza A um, vaccine. Um, Tell us a little bit about that research. What is it hope to accomplish and what maybe was specifically unique about um, that project?
1: So that uh, idea, the project, came, uh, came about shortly after the 2009 pandemic. And one of the things we know about influenza viruses is that it circulates in multiple animal species. So you have birds and pigs and humans. And so we decided to test the idea that you could take components of the viruses that infect um, pigs and the viruses that infect humans, since we know what's often circulating in those species, we could combine those together to create a vaccine that would prevent this transmission between those species that happens early during a pandemic. Um, And so we did that, we took some of the genetic material, uh, sort of broke it up into its individual components, um, reassembled it, and then created uh, vaccines that would sort of express uh, components from both
0: of those uh, viruses. so what i mean so now we're at the patent stage obviously you've developed the patent for it what what comes next after that
1: um the next step in the process would be uh licensing and trying to move that forward into something that would have uh, a larger pr- scale production and um and then testing in larger uh numbers of um animals uh, ideally um it could be translated into uh say pigs where they could be vaccinated and you could see how uh, a, large population of pigs responds to that
0: vaccine rather than the small group that we've tested. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about the flu vaccine. You've kind of gotten into influenza, obviously. You know, every year you always hear about that, that the flu vaccine this year might not be super effective. Uh, tell us a little bit about, like, where does this research project start? I mean, does, does, uh, you know? I don't even know what the f- the cold flu season technically would be, but like, is it every March, you know, like the season ends and then everybody regathers their forces and goes, okay, this is what we think the, the flu might do next year. Or is it more ongoing? Are people researching this year after year after year? And for whatever reason, they pick a certain, a certain strain of that vaccine, um, you know, just based on their observations. How does that all work?
1: Uh, Well, influenza is a pretty amazing virus that involves a global network uh, doing surveillance in both animals and humans. Um, It's an all year sort of process. When they make the selections about um, the virus or the vaccine itself, you have to remember the different seasonality in the northern and southern hemispheres. So what's happening, you know, in the northern hemisphere is opposite of what's happening in the southern. Um, And so we have to develop vaccines against both the northern and the southern. So it's a year round process. They're constantly doing surveillance. And then they meet twice a year to make a recommendation, uh, you know, for the southern hemisphere based on what they're seeing in the northern hemisphere and vice versa, so that they can try to figure out what virus
0: to target with the vaccination uh that is really interesting i had no idea the process worked like that i I don't know if you have any other you know pieces of information about how that might exactly work i mean um yeah like i said i mean i keep going back to this but occasionally you know a, a flu vaccine um may not be as effective against that particular influenza that becomes Predominant, you know, that season. Um, you know, why does that happen, um, and what do scientists, I guess, maybe learn from that process that then they um, employ in the, maybe the next year's virus or, or vaccine?
1: Right. So the the virus changes very rapidly. Um, it has an error prone polymerase. Basically, what that means is, as it makes its proteins, uh, makes its RNA that uh, that creates its proteins. Those proteins are going to have. Changes even within an individual. You can actually have, uh, within a human infection, you can isolate a different virus on day one that you would isolate on day five. The virus can change within uh, within the host as it sort of uh, infects. Um, So on a global scale, you can imagine that that's difficult to keep up with those changes uh, in the virus. Um, What uh, we have to do then is sort of identify what the dominant circulating strain is and try to develop a vaccine against that and hope that it covers the uh, the subdominant strains as best as
0: it can um you know, maybe we should have backed up and started from the very beginning. I mean, what is a vaccine? For for a listener that might not know, I mean, what is the most basic definition?
1: Um, the vaccine is a sort of way to induce an immune response without infecting uh, an individual with the infectious form of the virus or the, or the bacteria. So it's a way of sort of tricking the immune system into thinking that it's already seen the pathogen before without having
0: the signs of illness that are associated with that pathogen. You know, I, it's interesting to me. Obviously, I think vaccines have become I don't know if even use the word controversial, but some people have um opinions about vaccines. Um what's your take on this? I mean where where did this uh, I, I guess, you know, issue with vaccines come from? And what and what issue do people have with it?
1: So the sort of controversy around vaccines really dates back to um jenner's work when he first developed the uh, vaccines against smallpox um it's a situation where you have individuals that feel relatively healthy and you're giving them something that's going to prevent a disease that they're not currently seeing and that they um they don't think that they're really a, a huge risk to get um When we look at uh, something like, uh, you know, things like antibiotics, um, when you feel sick and you go to the doctor and they give you antibiotics, you can see the immediate recovery from the infection. You feel better, that's a a positive. When it's vaccine, there's always a little bit of skepticism Um, when we have, more immediate threat during the two thousand and nine pandemic, uh, everybody wanted to get the vaccine because there was that immediate threat this virus is circulating, and we want uh, the vaccine and obviously not everybody everybody wanted it, but there was a, a, a larger uh, desire to to be vaccinated um and then in times when the influenza season is is less th- and the fear is not or the threat is not as uh present um
0: then you uh, see that reduction in in uh, the desire to have it you know if i were to go get the flu shot tomorrow i mean am i going to be sick for uh work the next day i mean d- does it does it make you a little bit sick or is that more kind of an old wives tale
1: So one thing that, as I mentioned, uh, the vaccine is meant to give you uh, to trick your immune system into thinking it's seeing the pathogen while not causing the signs of illness. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to have things like pain at the injection site and other signs of the immune system doing its job. In order to get that immune response, you have to create uh, an environment where the immune system is going to respond to it. So you're going to get often a significantly lesser sort of, uh, response to the vaccine than you would to the virus itself. And, and sometimes that, uh, you know, in in the absence
0: of seeing the disease itself can seem like it's, it's more than, uh, than you would want. Um, you know, I recently had a niece and a nephew from my, my brother and sister. Um, each had a, a child uh, fairly recently. Um, you know, whooping cough was really like a huge thing that we talked about in our family. I know my grandparents, or my parents, um, you know, went and got the shot because they wanted to be there um, right when the baby was born. Um, what is whooping cough? Why is that, um, you know, you know, a, a disease that has kind of come back? I think maybe, maybe people associate it with a disease that was almost eliminated. Um, you know, similarly, I think tuberculosis tuberculosis is another one where we thought we kind of eliminated it but you see that that has risen in some populations um why are some of these diseases that maybe we once thought we had taken care of are, are kind of coming back into the fold
1: uh whooping cough is one where um they have vaccinated against it for years um they did change some of the components of the vaccine um and that was uh showed a subsequent increase in some of the incidence of the disease um The incidence, though, still is and the disease itself is less than a full whooping cough um, episode. Vaccines don't always um, eliminate the illness uh, from, say, the human population, like something that we saw with smallpox. Mm -hmm. Um, But getting vaccinated will provide a benefit in helping you to eliminate that infection, especially on first exposure. Um, So that's where some of that started to come into play. Um, Things like tuberculosis, we're seeing that in in populations where we have um, immunocompromised or reduced immune responses in individuals. um, And so that's where that's
0: coming into play, uh, in particular with things like HIV infections and stuff like that. You know, another one that I think has recently come up in the news, and I... I ignorant here, so maybe you might have a better understanding of it, but it's a polio-like virus um, that has recently sprung up. You know, we had Zika, I think, <clears throat> this would have been last year, maybe even the summer before that, um, was really in the news prevalent, um, kind of in the southern hemisphere. Um, I mean, is it one of those things where, you know, we're kind of due for a large pandemic? Um, you know, I've kind of read that in, in some of the literature that I use to prepare that, you know, some scientists think it's not a question of if, it's only a question of when we really get a bad one. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that that's one of the things that has sort of followed us throughout uh, history, and we've developed things like vaccines and antibiotics and other things to try and uh, prevent that. But there's always going to be that, um, you know, when it happens, um, and hopefully it hopefully it doesn't. Um, but with the interaction that we have between Different animal species and humans—it's um, kind of amazing that it doesn't happen more frequently than uh, than these ones that you mentioned with Zika and and some of these other viruses that are coming out and infecting humans.
0: You know, why did why, why did Zika? You know, that was a—I think—a virus that had been a long, around for a substantial long time. I think humans knew about it. They knew about um, you know the incidents where um, you know it causes specific issues with uh, fetuses, um, but why was there such a particularly you know, bad summer um, just recently? I mean, why do these viruses, is it just a simple mutation where you, you just, you can't really explain it, but there it goes? Or um, you know, are there environmental effects um, that influence these you know, viruses as well?
1: Um, Yeah, and I'm not as familiar with Zika, virologically speaking, as I am with something like uh, influenza, Um, but that could be the case. There's different strains uh, and uh, types of all of these viruses, and what can happen is that one just starts to dominate a little more than it did in the past, and that allows uh, for these presentations to be seen, and and then... um, and then you have a, a higher level level of concern because the virus is acting a little differently than it had in the past.
0: You, know, you just a moment ago talked about um, you know just the prevalence of you know the amount of contact that humans have with animals and how viruses can jump between um, species. You know, obviously, we live in a society where we mostly have free trade, free travel. Uh, people can go all over the world, be in one part of the globe one day, a totally different part the next. Um, you know, if we I guess, ran into a a really bad virus, a really bad um, disease. Would we have the tools to kind of stop it? Or or, or how, how would countries, how would the United States wrestle with a situation like that?
1: Right. I think we have a pretty good system in place for quarantining things when we see um, illnesses that are different than what we had expected. Um, you hear about it from time to time on cruise ships or even airplanes where they hold the passengers for a period of time to try to figure out what's what's happening. Um, and that can develop itself even on long flights or, or long uh, trips on cruise ships. Um, but for something that you know, a travel time that doesn't allow for you to see signs of illness, um, there are ways for it to sort of um, move across the country pretty rapidly. And fortunately, we haven't seen something um, move in that manner,
0: um, at least not in recent years. Um, you, know, you hear this term a lot. What is herd immunity?
1: Herd immunity, so the immune system is, uh, has evolved so that um, we all have a slightly different way of responding to the things that we're exposed to. And similar to what you mentioned about maybe a pandemic and some of these things uh, infecting other people, we all can't respond to everything that we're exposed to. So the goal of an immune uh, of a vaccination effort is to induce immunity in all the people who can respond to that in such a way so that the people who don't necessarily respond to that vaccine are still protected from the, the spread of that virus. So it doesn't enter into the human population and start infecting all of the people. Um, as part of the immune response, um, we have something called a, an MHC, a major histocompatibility complex, and that helps to drive our ability to respond to vaccines and to pathogens.
0: And each of us are different at that um, MHC locus. And so, yeah, I mean, what is the appropriate level then, I guess, of, you know, how big of a population do you want immunized? I mean, is that, is that specific to a disease? Um, how does that work?
1: It really varies on how rapidly uh, the disease spreads and, you um, and so the, the levels of this so-called herd immunity can range from, you know, 30% of the population up to 90% of the population. Right. Again, depending on how rapidly uh, the virus spreads, something like measles is a very strong and rapid spreader. Um, whereas you know one infected person can spread it to 18 uninfected people, um, other viruses don't spread that rapidly. Um, so you can be ha- have a little less of that herd immunity and contain
0: uh, the virus from spreading within the population. Um, to shift gears, I guess one more time. I mean, we we talked recently about, or just a second ago about. Uh, you know, the the work that you did with an influenza A patent, Um, what's next? I mean, what other research projects may be on your plate, um, you know, as far as what you're doing here at USD? So in addition
1: to vaccine uh, development, that's one side of my research uh, interest. The other side are the secondary bacterial infections. So when you get infected with influenza virus, you often get ill, but that doesn't usually lead to the deaths that are associated with influenza. What usually happens is you get a secondary bacterial infection or a co-infection because the immune response gets weakened by the initial influenza infection. And so what we've been modeling are those types of secondary bacterial infections. And we're really interested in understanding how vaccine-induced immunity can prevent secondary bacterial infections. And so we, we always have that as part of our radar, looking at Uh, vaccination not only as a way to prevent infection with influenza virus, but also as a way to prevent secondary infection. And to sort of go along with one of the points I said earlier, where the vaccine isn't meant to sort of eliminate the pathogen Um, entirely uh, just to reduce the illness, there is evidence that vaccination against influenza can help limit not only that primary viral infection, but also the development of secondary bacterial infections, which is ultimately what leads to death. So again, sometimes you hear people say they got the influenza vaccine, they still got influenza. I would argue that that influenza was probably lower in severity than what they would have gotten had they not gotten vaccinated. And ideally reduce the potential of getting a secondary bacterial infection which is what you want to
0: limit um you know how do students involve themselves with this type of research I mean it, it seems pretty remarkable the stuff that you all are doing um you know if uh if I was particular interested science student maybe in high school or college what would you suggest I do to maybe prepare myself in a career like this
1: um so we do involve undergraduate students in our research uh, quite extensively. Um, There are a lot of, uh, quite a few uh, campus-wide and statewide programs to get students involved in research. Uh, This has been sort of extending out to uh, high school students and now even middle middle school students. Um, I've had high school students work in my lab for uh, research experiences, five or six week research experiences during the summer, um, and that's one way that if you're interested in research, you could uh, find some of those opportunities and apply for them and and, uh, and then get some experience working in the lab.
0: Um, no, that's cool. I di- I didn't realize that those opportunities were available. Um, yeah, to kind of maybe sum this conversation back up. Um, you know one question that we always like to ask is a little bit philosophical in nature, and i 've tried to resist going down that route with some of these questions just because I think just how viruses adapt and evolve uh, is super interesting and i, I don 't know if there's ever you know moments where in your research where you 're ever just like surprised by what a virus did like you 're just shocked by its behavior or maybe it seems to have maybe a mind of its own um, but I think this question also relates to obviously your teaching experience um, your professional experience. Um, At this point in your life, what do you know for sure?
1: Um, I know that the immune system is one of the most important aspects of our survival, our sort of life on the planet, and the ability to interact with the outside environment and respond to it um, is
0: something that we should not take for granted. Victor, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.